0: Good morning, Bethel. Did you get shoveled out of your driveway? (laughs) If you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We have been in Matthew for many weeks now. Uh, The the sermon series title is King Jesus, and that is the emphasis of this book. We are meant to see that Jesus has come as the King, the long-expected Messiah, the Anointed One. Uh, the king who will usher in his kingdom. And uh, uh, as you kind of find your spot there, I want to ask that you bow your heads and pray with me as we uh, come to the Lord and ask for his help in our study. Father, we have um, prayed much already this morning. We have sung much. We've hopefully been warm and greeted our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Lord, we have uh, we have come to this place to worship. I ask God that our, this act right now of sitting under the instruction of your word would also be a continual act of worship and that our worship would not stop when the service is done, but that the transformation that has begun through our interactions, through prayer, through reflection, through study, and through singing, that these things, Lord, would continue throughout the day, throughout the week, that our whole lives would be living acts of worship. So Lord, we come here to fix our hearts and our minds upon you, to orient ourselves and our lives according to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. So help us to see that now as we study your word. We pray this in his name. Amen. One particularly beautiful aspect of the Christian faith is its relational ethic. Uh, I don't know if you've thought about that much before, uh, but it's true. Uh, The Christian faith does not seek to produce a group of people who simply love God alone. Uh, But in fact, as we study the scriptures, we quickly discover that true love for God is expressed not only in loving God, but also in loving others, and that the two are are inextricably linked. You have that in your handout this morning. In fact, your handout is kind of arranged a little bit differently than normal. We'll throw in all kinds of changes at you this morning. Normally, I have a very linear, point by point outline. Uh, today, we have a graph of sorts. So, uh, we're, we're going about this a little bit differently. But right at the top, I want you to see this is the bullet point this morning. Love for God in the scriptures is expressed, and in, in, in our lives, is expressed also by loving others. Uh, There is both, the Christian faith has both a vertical and a horizontal access to it in terms of relationships. And we can see this throughout the teachings of the scriptures and throughout the history of the faith. In the Ten Commandments, we find that commandments 1 through 4 instruct us in our love for God. And commandments 5 through 10 instruct us in how we go about loving mankind. And so we can see both this vertical and horizontal relationship that's expressed there. We see this also in the teachings of Jesus. We'll, of course, run across it this morning. But elsewhere, he has said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets rest on these. And as we move into the epistles and we see the teachings of, of the apostles, we also, fa- we also find uh, from, from John who says, anyone who says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, is what? Is a liar. Is a liar. And so we see throughout, throughout the scriptures, and not just in the New Testament, but certainly in the Old Testament as well, that the Christian ethic of relationships is that we love God and that we love others and that, in fact, we cannot rightfully love God if we do not love others. The two are inextricably... Linked. We don't love God alone, but we love those that he loves, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ and also all of mankind. Now, I'm sure this is not a new teaching for you if you've been in the church for any length of time or if you pay attention in church, maybe I should say. This is not new. You've heard this before. But what I would like to kind of underscore for you is this, that this relational ethic within the Christian faith is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I think that's something that we tend to overlook because of its familiarity. But think about the beauty of the Christian ethic against the backdrop of a loveless world or a self-loving world or against the backdrop of religions which teach, love God, but go ahead and hate or even kill the infidel. And against that, we see the beauty of the Christian ethic. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount (coughs) followed, of course, his announcement uh, that we ought to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And through the Sermon on the Mount, we've been learning about really Jesus' portrayal of life in the kingdom of God. What is the significance of the inbreaking kingdom of God in the here and now? How does it affect every aspect of our lives? And he's been moving systematically through these things. So let me remind you of some of the places that we've been. We looked at what was called the Beatitudes, or as I suggested they should be called, the Beglatitudes, Right? Because here in this list, we find, in spite of all of these circumstances, for those who have repented and come to faith in Christ, rejoice and be glad you're in the kingdom of God. So whether you find yourself to be poor in spirit, or meek, or persecuted, or hungering and thirsting for righteousness, or pure in heart, rejoice. Yours is the kingdom of God. Be comforted in these circumstances because of what God is doing. And then we also saw at the end of that, Jesus says, well, you can't just hide. You can't just hunker down and say, well, great, the faith is in me. I'm saved. I'm good. I'm just going to go into bunker mode and wait for this kingdom to to be fully consummated. Jesus won't allow us to do that. He tells us, in fact, that we are to be salt and light. We're to be agents of preservation in this world and light for the beauty of the glorious gospel of our Lord. He goes on then to talk about obedience. The law hasn't been abrogated or pushed away. It's still, it's still there. It still teaches us what God wants from us, but it's to be done as a matter of an internalized obedience. It's supposed to come from the inside out, not just wooden ex- obedience to a list of rules, but we're to be changed from the inside out because of the indwelling spirit of God, such that we would naturally do the things that God is would have us do as the heart, this new heart of flesh that he has brought to us through his spirit is being uh, transformed in us. And he talks about one of the ways that we can kind of facilitate this changing, this transformation, this new heart being built up in us is that we would do our good deeds, but that we would do them in secret. Not for the eyes of men, but for the Lord only. And then our Father who sees what is done in secret will reward us. And finally, another way that we can facilitate this heart change has to do with our treasure. As Jesus teaches, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So we're to live not for this kingdom on earth, but we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All of this within one sermon. And we're just plodding along. And now we come up to this part in Jesus' teaching here where he shows us how living in the kingdom of God here and now affects our relationships. And that's the title of our sermon this morning, Relating to God and Others. So look with me at Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Did I read that twice? I think I did. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, this passage, especially this first verse Uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, this may be one of the best-known passages in all of the Scriptures, especially to the unbelieving world, okay? Especially if you walk around planet Earth, and as a Christian, maybe you offer some advice on something or a correction on something that you think is immoral or wrong or whatever, and, and you say so, you are going to hear this verse back, right? And it's going to sound like this, judge not, lest ye be judged, so the unbelieving world not only knows it, they know it in the King James, no less. <laughs> this, is, this is like, they've got this one. This is a bullet on their hip. And I think oftentimes, as, as Christians, when we hear this one shot back to us, uh, we can be silenced at times, and we think, well, okay, Jesus did say that in the King James, no less. So uh, <laughs> wh- what, what am I to do here? Is that what this passage means? The Greek word used here for judge is krino, and it has a semantic range. It has a range of meanings, and that range includes everything from analyzing or evaluating all the way to the the further end of the spectrum of condemning or avenging, and so it covers that full range here. Now, here's the question. By the context, by the context, what does the word mean? What does it show us? Is Jesus saying that we cannot make evaluations, determinations, judgments, critiques? Is that what he's telling us? I will tell you, absolutely not. The context will not allow us to come to that conclusion. I think it's the latter half of that semantic range that Jesus is referencing here, that we are not to be in a condemning posture. We are not to act as judge and jury. We are to make judgments, but we're not to be a judgmental people. And I think that's what we're going to see here. So let me try to show this to you. So this is our first point. If I can get it to come up. See here our our, uh, horizontal and vertical axes? And you may have to squint to pull the words out there, right? The first point is this. Don't condemn others and don't waste words of wisdom. Um, Frequently in the scriptures, we are explicitly asked to make a judgment or an evaluation on something or or someone. We're, we're, ex, we're expected to do that. In fact, right here in this passage, in chapter 7, verse 6, we're told, don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So let's stop and look at this for just for a few moments here and understand sort of uh, culturally how the first, how the original hearers would have heard this. And by the way, that's always good Bible reading. Good Bible reading is done in three steps, right? What did this mean to the original hearers? What's the timeless principle? How is that principle significant for my life here today? We have to understand what it meant first before we know what it means now. If we do this in reverse, we'll get it all wrong. To the original hearers, dogs and pigs had a different connotation than it does for us. For us, dogs and pigs are cute, quirky creatures that we live very comfortably with, okay? Notice no mention of cats here, it doesn't even come up. But we have dogs in our homes. We give them names. They're our pets. We recreate with them. Uh, we're gonna see the start to the Iditarod on Monday down here on the river, right? We give them treats, we, we, we teach them tricks. They entertain us. They're part of the family. Oh, dogs are great, right? Those are dogs to us in our world. And pigs, you know, similarly, we go, we go to a farm and we see pigs and we laugh at them and their noises and the way they grunt and move around silly. Or we see them at the farmer's market or we see them at the fair or something like this. They're cute, quirky little creatures that we kind of laugh about and they're great on a turkey sandwich. So. But... To a Jewish audience, dogs and pigs were despised. Dogs were not domesticated pets. They were ravenous creatures that went, ran around wild, that carried diseases, that looked for food where they could get it, that took it and stole it. They were ravenous. That's a dog to the first century Jewish world. And pigs, unclean, untouchable, disgusting, deplorable creatures, despised. So we have, to, we have to take on the mindset of the original hearers. Don't give the do, dogs what is sacred. Don't give pearls to pigs here. And <clears throat> the idea of giving something sacred to dogs probably pictures the equivalent of taking something, maybe a part of the Passover meal, maybe a choice morsel of, of meat, and, and handing it to this wild, ravenous, disease-ridden Creature, don't give the dogs what is sacred here, and and the risk identified here is that is. I, in fact, I used to think it was it was one thing, and I think it's actually more than this. I used to think that the risk was simply that you would offer this morsel of choice food to this creature who would simply look upon it and would woof it down without savoring its goodness or appreciating or recognizing its importance. They it would have no sense of its greater significance and would just woof it down. And that's part of it, but it's not all of it, too. Because as we see, as we move on, the full picture given here, there's a greater risk presented, and that is that this ravenous, wild dog will look past the morsel of goodness and instead see the giver, the offerer, as the next meal. You see that? It's not just that the food would be given with no appreciation, and devoured quickly. It's that the offerer, the giver, is in jeopardy of what? Being torn to pieces. That's the risk. And so I think for accuracy, I think the modern reader should probably almost understand this passage. We could almost substitute wolf for dog here. Almost. I mean, wolf was an available word for for Jesus, and that's not what he used. But in terms of what dogs were to that culture, it's probably closer to a wolf for us. In other words, don't walk up to a wolf and offer it a piece of your Christmas ham because the wolf's going to look back at you and say, you're the ham. That'll be a nice appetizer. Thank you very much. That's the risk here. The risk is that you end up offering your own flesh and you're approaching one without discernment. And if you do so... They may turn and tear you to pieces. Pearls to pigs is similar. And it obviously pictures something of great value, this pearl. It has this value and this purity and this goodness, which is absolutely wasted in this striking contrast between something so good and to the Jewish audience, these pigs, which are so filthy and deplorable, right? Uh, if, If you think of the story of the prodigal son, the shock in that story is that this fine, upstanding Israelite, Jewish man, would then go and end up serving pigs. That's, that's the shock of it, that he would be there. No, there could be no worse job. And so this contrast, we're meant to see this striking contrast between the two, something of great value and something utterly filthy and corrupt. And Proverbs makes use of this too. In Proverbs eleven twenty-two, there's this great, memorable proverb, like a gold ring In a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. The point is, it's just a waste of beauty. A waste of beauty. And the point here is similar pearls to pigs. This value, this goodness of what could be shared is just wasted, given again to one who is undiscerning. Now that means that there is some speech, some instruction, some correction, some advice That we at times are meant to hold on to. Because it will merely be trampled on or woofed down without discernment. Or even more than that. It may put us at risk for ultimately being devoured by the one we had hoped to share with. That's what it means. And I think the application for all of us is this. That means that in our relationships we have to make determinations. We have to make judgments. A judgment call as to a person's discernment and to their receptivity to what we have to say before we choose to share it. And so, honestly, this passage is answering a question that I've had pastorally for a long time, uh, which basically is this. Should we measure our speech, our correction, whatever, based upon how we think someone will respond to it, or do we just deliver the truth in all places and scatter it freely? And You know what I mean? And just give it at all times and all places. And it seems to me that this passage, what Jesus is telling us, is that we should measure our words. And that we should consider the likely outcome. We should make a judgment, a determination as to one's receptivity to our words. Lest we give, to put it in the King James style, lest we give pearls to pigs or something sacred to someone who is undiscerning and a ravenous creature who will simply turn back in anger and hostility upon us. And so I think the message is be discerning. Measure your words. Uh, there's another example here. Um, <coughs> I want to go back to my overarching point, which is the necessity to make judgments. So even though the passage says don't judge, again, I think he's saying don't be condemning. I don't think he's saying we can't make judgments or evaluations or, or assessments. And I'll show you again where he, he in fact, Explicitly tells us that we are to do so. Uh, if we go just to a few verses later uh, to verse 15, uh, which we're not going to cover thoroughly this morning, but he says to watch out for false prophets. And then he says, uh, you, you're to make a determination about them in terms of their credibility and their authenticity by the fruit of their lives. In other words, we're explicitly commanded to make an assessment to look upon them, to see their lives, to make a determination, to make a judgment as to which kinds of people they are. So that helps us understand what Jesus is and isn't staying here when he says, judge not. Clearly, this is something he expects us to do in some cases. Um, So again, when we're confronted with, hey, judge not, lest ye be judged, I think we need to pause, and it doesn't need to silence us. We just need to understand There are times when we have to evaluate a person's character, their action, and the fruit of their lives, and that evaluation should give shape and help us measure our words as we make important determinations, as Jesus specifically tells us to. Also notice this. Now, Jesus uses this dramatic picture, and this was fun. Last week, I suggested that maybe uh, if I were a cartoonist that I would have drawn such and such. Man, I got two cartoons from some kids in this church and they were awesome. And here you go, kids, here's another one. Uh, so I'll throw the, or adults, whatever, you know. <laughs> whatever you gotta do to stay engaged here. Um, a plank in your own eye and trying to remove a speck of dust from another's eye. Let's, let's see some good drawings of that. But here Jesus used this really dramatic picture and, and we all kind of know, the, we, we get this, we understand it. Yes, this is absurd, there's hypocrisy here. I've got this, you know, big thing in my own life and here I am picking at this little thing in yours. The passage clearly tells us that we're to remove the plank in our own eye first. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It goes on to say what? Then having removed the plank, look to remove the speck in the other's eye. So all of this I mean to show you, when Jesus says, judge not, He's not saying we can't make assessments, evaluations, corrective statements, these kinds of things. We have to do this. That's what the scripture teaches. That's what the context teaches all around this passage. We're not to be a condemning sort of people. And so this passage doesn't preclude Christians from the responsibility of making careful judgments and evaluations. It cautions us and advises us about the manner in which we do so. And I think the spirit of it, of this passage, is captured in other places too, such as in James 2.12, where it says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Or to make good judgments without being a condemning or judgmental people. I think also Paul gets it really really well and crisp in Colossians four six. Let your conversations be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Not full of salt and the occasional act of grace. So now Jesus turns here from this horizontal axis of relationship to the vertical axis here, and he begins to talk about our relationship with the Lord, and he specifically addresses the manner in which we approach the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 7. "'Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For anyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened.' Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And so the second point this morning is this, that we are invited to come to God confidently. I think there are a number of risks out there for for us who, as worshipers of the Lord, want to approach Him and come to Him, and on maybe one side of the continuum, there are those who are tempted to come too casually and too easily to the Lord, glibly and without reverence or respect. We can come to the Lord thinking Him like our buddy, buddy buddy God, except those two words go neatly together. And that's probably one risk on one side of the continuum. But on the other side of the continuum, I think, is that we don't have a healthy fear, or what was once maybe a healthy fear has become of being one being afraid of God, being so reverent that we put him at distance from us such that we don't come to him hardly at all. And I think we can make a mistake to either, either one side or the other. Uh, when I was growing up, um, my dad worked at home. And so he had a a home office. And um, in some ways, this was great because dad was home, you know. So there were things that that he could do or that we could do together because uh, there was some fluidity with with his hours and with his work. So, you know, he could drive for my away games. Uh, My parents drove often. And that was the way we got to spend time together, uh, especially when I was in high school. Um, But when I was a little kid, especially, this was harder for me because I didn't know how to determine if dad was at home and available or if dad was at home and at work. And the lines were sort of blurry, and I didn't know how to interpret this as a kid. Um, Now, I love my dad. We have a good relationship today. And we had a good relationship when I was a kid. But as a kid, I had difficulty sort of interpreting uh, this world. And I was a little bit of the black sheep in my family. I loved sports and athletics and whatever, and... Most of my family didn't, and so I had interests that weren't necessarily my dad's. And so I can remember as a kid, you know, with a ball and glove in hand, walking up to my dad saying, "You know, can can we play catch right now?" And sometimes it was, "Sure, no problem." And other times it was, "Eric, I'm working right now." And I remember like, "Okay, I don't know. <laughs> we need a sign on the door. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What, I don't know if your dad at home or dad at work or." I don't know if you're available uh, to me right now. And, um, so, you know, that's, that's just something that I experience. And I think some of us experience this with the Lord as well. You know, we, we don't know if he's going to be available to us. We maybe bring or import some fears or trepidation in our approach to the Lord based upon other aspects and other, other relationships in our life. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear here We're not to approach with apprehension or fear, but confident that our God is readily available to us. He is both always working and never too busy. His eye is never off of us. He isn't surprised when we come to him. His heart is always inclined to us, desiring and longing that we would come to him. In fact, Jesus stacks together repetitive and progressive words to make sure that we would be assured in our approach to the Lord. Ask, seek, knock. And we're assured that at each approach that we would be welcomed and that we would would be safe. And for the apprehensive child, we can be assured. Um, Again, we're not to come timidly, but boldly and confidently And Jesus secures us of God's unwavering love for us. He will welcome our approach and will receive us. The door will be opened. Seeking, we will find him available for us. And asking of him, we will receive what is ultimately good for us. And so the reality of the kingdom of God here, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, doesn't tear down or remove the holiness of God or the reverence for him or anything like that, but it assures us of our right to be with him and to approach him because Christ has made it so. And that is beautiful. And I want to tell you, that is an assurance that I don't think the Old Testament saints enjoyed. They think their fear was always, how will God respond to us in our approach here? In fact, maybe you've heard sort of the, the, now this is a little bit um, tradition. We don't have this exactly in the scriptures, but um, when the priest, the high priest, would go into the enter the Holy of Holies uh, to represent the people to God once a year, they would tie a rope around his ankle such that if he hadn't properly prepared himself for this interaction with a Holy God, he might have fallen dead and would have to be pulled out of this unsafe place because of the holiness of God. We don't find that. We find Jesus saying, ask, seek, knock. You will find a waiting father ready to receive you. Um, (coughs) We move to the third point here. We see the basis of this vertical relationship. So we've already talked about not being condemning of other people and not wasting our words, but being discerning as we make judgments. We need to do that. Jesus explicitly tells us to. And then we're, we're, we're brought into uh, this vertical relationship. We are to approach the Lord with confidence, ask, seek, knock. But the basis of this is on his fatherly care. We are assured of his fatherly care. Actually, we've got this in the wrong place, don't we? Because this is over here on the... Yep, we're on the wrong one. So I'm going to go forward another slide. You can see the whole thing right now. We want to look at the bottom aspect of here, the, the bottom part of this vertical relationship. We're assured of his fatherly care. So if ask, seek, and knock describes really the upward aspect of our vertical relationship, then we find in Christ's teachings the foundation of it that God relates to us as a father, And he is portrayed portrayed as a loving father, willing and eager that we would come to him so that he might provide for us. And the the point that we have to hear is that our, our God, our heavenly father, he desires our approach, he longs for our seeking, and he really, truly delights to give good gifts. Look at verse nine. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I, I don't know about all of your hearts. I think some people like to give gifts more than others. Some of, for some of you, this is really your thing. This is your passion. For myself, I really love to give gifts. Uh, in our family, every year, there's always a debate as Christmas time rolls around how are we going to approach Christmas this year? And, you know, we're always looking at the budget, and usually there's a strategy in place. Well, let's try to keep costs down by doing X, Y, Z, or whatever. And I'm always the one that goes, I'm sorry, but my Christmas is to give gifts. You know, let's cancel the meal and the decorations and whatever else. I, I like to give a gift to, to somebody. And so there's always a little bit of tug of war in our home at Christmas time as to how we're going to approach this. I really do love to give gifts, especially to my kids. Uh, I loved buying Aiden his first hunting rifle. Uh dads you can relate to this. This is one of those things you're just like we're going to go spill blood together, son. <laughs> I can't believe I said that from the pulpit, but Uh amen. I heard an amen. Okay. Uh you know Eleanor had her eyes on a pair of boots a couple months back. And I just loved that, you know, her heart was inclined towards those. Then it was fun to be able to give those to her. I was able to give her something that was meaningful to her, right? Uh, For Christmas, Gus got his first pocket knife. He's eight. It has a rounded safety tip on it, (laughs) which we've discovered is a good thing. Um, And so I've enjoyed taking my kids these last two years to fly fishing camp. And uh, watching them learn this skill that we then get to participate in together and see them make their own flies and catch a fish on their own rod with a fly they've made themselves. I mean, that, that's fun stuff. And as a dad, you know, my heart, I long to see those things and to do those things. And not just, I love to give a thoughtful gift, not just something that's wrapped in cellophane, bought at the store necessarily, but something that will bring us together, something that's good for them for the long term that has a sentimental connection between father and child. That matters to me. That's that's a big deal to me. And Jesus says, you can look at your own sinful hearts, affections, and longing to give good gifts to your kids. How much more so, from a lesser to a greater, how much more so does your heavenly Father long to give good gifts to you? I know my love for my kids. I know you know your love for your kids. You want their very best. And we're riddled with sin. How much more so a holy God with a pure heart, with, a, with no end of treasure to give. He gives good gifts to his kids. And so this whole basis of us approaching him with confidence, being willing to ask and seek and knock, is based upon this fatherly care. We are to be assured of his heart and it's his heart's inclination towards us. Fourthly, here we're to treat others as we want to be treated. In verse twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, when Aiden was a little boy, this is a funny story. Uh, one day, Eleanor—I don't think Gus was even around yet. Eleanor had done something that had bothered Aiden, and uh, as happens in all of our homes, and um, Aiden came back at her. By effectively doing the same thing and inflicting as much discomfort and pain and frustration upon her as he had received. And so we heard the squawking and the noise that was brought to our attention and we kind of weigh in to determine what's going on here, who's at fault, what happened. And uh, Aiden turned to us and said, I just did unto her as she did unto me. <laughs> and wanted us to know that he was practicing the golden rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we were like, Okay, you know, nice try, buddy. That's not how that works. That's retaliation, you know, which is satisfying, but wrong. <laughs> and uh, so we had, to, we had to correct this a little bit. Um, but once again, I want to just hold up this truth that we're taught here, this golden rule, do to others, do to others what you would have them do to you. And I want to hold this up that we might see, again, it's beauty. We know this well. We hear it all the time. It's even in the classrooms in secular schools, right? It's everywhere. I mean, don't bring your Bibles in there, but we'll put the verse on the wall. I think it's because they don't know to attribute it to Jesus, nevertheless. It's a beautiful, beautiful rule. It is practical guidance in the reciprocal nature of relationships. I am to do to you what I would have you do to me. We're to imagine both sides of these things and to take care to do ours well. And I, you know, <clears throat> I learned something this week in my study, and that is that there was a common teaching of the day, what we now sort of, I don't not jokingly, but sort of glibly refer to as the silver rule. It was taught by others, particularly Rabbi Hillel, who was a contemporary of Jesus here and the silver rule taught almost the same thing as the golden rule, which I've just said, but it taught it from a negative perspective. In other words, it would say this, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Let me say it again. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Now, that, that sounds really similar, and, and it sounds good. There's some goodness to it, but if, if you look at it carefully, you'll see that that's thin. Thin. In fact, one scholar, Mounts, who I was reading this week, critiqued the inadequacies of that by saying, in its negative form, the golden rule, or what I've called to here the silver rule, can be satisfied by doing nothing. But in the positive form, one is moved to action. Right? So, so, so the, the common teaching of the day, and this is again consistent with what else we see in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, right? You have heard it said, but I tell you. So Jesus doesn't use those words here, but his teaching about the golden rule, do to others, is in contrast to what was commonly taught of the day, don't do. And it moves us to action, not just inactivity. And I want to hold that up again and say that that is beautiful. The Christian ethic of relationships is beautiful because it calls us to act. It calls us to Christian action. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus will say, as often as you have done this for me, or for the least of these, you have done this for me. The golden rule. And then he seems to imply the silver rule here. As often as you have not done this for the least of these, you have not done it for me. The Christian ethic of relationships is a call to action. The Christian ethic of relationships exists both on the vertical and the horizontal plane. Our action is done unto the Lord, whether it's directed to him or whether it's directed to those around us. It is all ultimately unto the Lord. And what we find in the scriptures again and again is that we're not called to love God alone, but that our love for God is inextricably intertwined with active, engaged love for others. And that is the great principle of, of the golden rule and the relational ethic. In fact, shockingly, Jesus declares that it summarizes all of the law and the prophets, which is another way of saying the Old Testament. Now, if you love bullet points and notes and summaries, Jesus says, I got the Old Testament for you right here. Do to others what you'd have them do to you. That's amazing. And it's not just inactivity. It's not just withholding things as the silver rule. It's called to engaged action. What is it that we would need or want if the shoe were on the other foot and we're called to do these particular things? So let me bring us to a close here so we can see how all this comes together. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God, as Jesus is preaching about, is not just a future hope and it's not just a theological abstraction, it has an impact has an impact in our day-to-day life, in our relationships with the Lord and with others because these two are linked. Relationships are on an X, Y axis here, a vertical and horizontal axis, they're linked. And it changes the way we conduct our relationships with other people. We are called to actively love them and we are called to actively come to the Lord with confidence because of his fatherly care. And so Jesus teaches us here in this passage the reality of the kingdom of God and the way that it affects our relationships to him and to others. our Father, we thank you that you have changed our whole, the whole dynamic of our lives. The reality is not that our feet are planted here in this place, but our true home is with you in the kingdom of God, which has begun in the here and now. Lord, thank you that you have changed the nature of our relationship with you from rebels to children. May we be secure in that. And as your children who want to love you well, may we love you by actively loving others in good and right relationships. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.